Welcome to the Louder Vision podcast for creative people. I'm filmmaker, artist, and your host, Laura Mioli. I'm also author of the book, Clarity for Your Creative Career, tips, advice, and inspiration from successful artists to quit the job you hate and create a life you love. The paperback and ebook versions are now available on Amazon.com and on my website, loudavision.com. Today, my guest is Michael Grabowski, Associate Professor and Chair of the Communication Department at Manhattan College. I'm working with Dr. Grabowski on creating the first ever course teaching virtual reality at Manhattan College, and it's called VR Perception Production Possibilities. And that's what we're here to talk about today, virtual reality. And we're here today recording in the Sumner Redstone Television Production Center at Manhattan College. So, Michael, thank you for allowing us to record here, and thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Laura. Awesome. So I want to jump right in, and let's start by talking about your thoughts on virtual reality. Is it here to stay, is, or is it a trend or a fad similar to 3D movies that kind of comes and goes? What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, it seems that the history of virtual reality is that it starts, everyone gets excited, and then it goes away. But it seems like that interest is growing to the point where it's not going to disappear anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Even though we're still working with uh, bulky headsets, uh, developers are uh, currently creating models that are more lightweight, more interactive, easier on the eyes, less nausea. And uh, Variety recently reported that the industry is planning to grow to about $75 billion by 2021. Wow. So what I find really interesting about that is that movies only brought in about $11 billion last year, and video games is about $99 billion. So we're seeing an industry that's growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, even though a lot of people don't have headsets in their homes, I'm seeing a lot of malls repurposing spaces to create VR arcades. I'm seeing a lot of what we call 4D rides or uh, rides where you will move around in a seat while you're wearing VR goggles. Mm -hmm. We also see a lot of traditional amusement parks installing VR uh, headsets. And even recently, I saw a tourist bus in Times Square mm -hmm. advertising a VR tour experience of New York City. How would that even work? <laughs> <laughs> well, the claim is that the uh, tour will bring you around to sites that you'll see with your real eyes, mm -hmm. and then you put on the VR goggles and look around and see what New York City looked like in the past. Oh, interesting. So is that more like augmented reality, or is it completely VR? Uh, the tour bus uh, experience is fully VR. So when you mm -hmm. put on the goggles, you're actually replacing the vision that you would see of the natural world with this image of New York City in the past. AR, augmented reality, otherwise known as mixed reality, is a combination of seeing things in the natural world with uh, graphics, images, data, text, overlaid uh, that view of the natural world. So someone playing Pokemon Go, for instance, mm -hmm. is engaging in AR, whereas if you put on virtual reality goggles like the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive, you're completely replacing the vision of mm -hmm. what's around you with this other video that you're looking at through the screen. Interesting. So it sounds like you're on the side of thinking that it is here to stay and not just like smell-o-vision or something where it's kind of like here for a month and then it goes away. 
Yeah, my prediction is that we're going to see more content, uh, more experimental work, but it's not going to mimic movies or TV shows. That's a common mistake that people make is that mm -hmm. when a new medium appears on the scene, a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be just like the old medium. This is what we call rear view mirror uh, thinking that, mm -hmm. oh, this is uh, television is radio with pictures or movies are like plays that have been recorded. Mm -hmm. What we find out is that after the initial attraction stage where people are like, wow, this is really cool. I got to check out this new thing. They start developing their own language. And so mm -hmm. VR will develop in ways that no one can predict what that will be mm -hmm. at present time. Interesting. So I think for a lot of people, when something new comes out, it, it's that comfort of wanting to compare it to something else. And so I think of VR as more like film and gaming put together. What makes virtual reality special in comparison to film, television, or even, or even video content? That's a great question. We see now a lot of filmmakers are experimenting with VR, and they are treating VR just like they would with film. They say, oh, we're going to set up the VR camera here. We're going to record this scene. We're going to have actors perform in it. Or if it's documentary filmmakers, we're just going to see what happens. But really quickly, they discover that this is working with a completely different medium. For one thing, film has a frame you are able to point the camera in a direction. Everything that's not in view of the camera is out of the frame. It does not exist as far as the film is concerned. VR is different in that the frame for VR is basically concentric spheres. So you actually have to block something with an object in order for it not to be seen by a VR camera. The VR camera is a 360-degree view. You're able to look all around, up and down. And so it's really the viewer or the experiencer who's wearing the goggles that determines what they're seeing, not the filmmaker. That means that having someone who would normally be called a director on film has a different role when they're creating a VR experience. They can't direct you to look somewhere. They can try to influence where someone looks. But the user is the one who's going to determine what direction they're looking in. And so the director probably has to be more a, a better hider. They have to be better at hiding from the, the VR camera. Yeah, I think we're looking to schools of filmmaking like the Dogma 95 school, which uh, believed, oh, we're going to make a movie without any additional uh, sets. We're going to use whatever is there. We're not going to use any additional lights. We'll use whatever is there. And the VR practitioner basically has to abide by that philosophy because if you set up a light, someone could conceivably turn around and look and see that light. If you set up a boom microphone, someone can see that microphone. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more what some people describe as an honesty in the process in that mm -hmm. you can't hide things behind the camera. So for people that don't really know how to make VR, what is used to create a virtual reality world besides these 360 cameras? Uh, well, there are there are two different ways to produce a 360-degree environment. One way is with cameras themselves. These are cameras that either have spherical lenses, fisheye lenses, and they'll take two lenses, uh, one for the front and one for the back, and then software uh, stitches those two images together. Or you might have multiple cameras capturing different angles of a uh, spherical environment and then using sophisticated software to stitch 
all those individual uh, pieces of frame film into a 360-degree image. And so that's very good for photorealistic, uh, capturing real time of, of real environments. Uh, the thing with that, though, is that 360-degree video is always taken from a single point of view. The person wearing the headset has to see from the perspective of the camera. They can independently walk through the environment themselves. Another way of producing VR is uh, through computer animation itself. The VR creator will build a 360-degree 3D environment in some sort of computer uh, animation program. Uh, they can uh, build modeling objects in programs like Maya, and then they can import those objects into the Unreal Engine or Unity, our two popular systems. Once you build that environment, you can have users move through that environment. Now, that's not quite photorealistic yet. We don't have the computer processing power to create a photorealistic environment that uh, someone can move through in real time. Keep in mind what would be involved in making that happen. Let's say I'm wearing my VR headset and I decide to move forward um, a couple of feet. Well, my headset then has to send that information back to the computer saying, update the field of view uh, to be in this new position in the 3D environment. The computer then has to render the, each frame of that environment and send that to the headset without any latency or delay so that as I move forward, it looks like my vision is updating uh, through that space as if I were walking through a nat uh, natural space. Um, in order to render a photorealistic image with a frame rate that's high enough and with low latency, that requires a significant amount of computing power, more than what we have today. Having said that, we used to play Pac-Man mm -hmm. and be happy with those graphics. Yeah. So uh, I suspect that computing power will uh, increase and eventually we will reach that photorealistic uh, high frame rate environment with no latency. With this new experience of VR from a creator's perspective, what is the the director or the creator's goal? Because before it was, I'm going to set up a camera and I'm going to show the viewer what I want them to see and they're going to hear what I want them to hear. But in VR, you have it seems like you have way less control over that. That's the challenge of VR is trying to imagine what is the role of the creator and what is the role of the user. Um, when we talk about film, we think of audiences as being passive, that they're sitting there in their seats and they're watching something that's being presented to them. A director is deciding moment by moment what angle the audience is going to see, what perspective, how long each shot is going to be, and what they're going to hear. In a VR environment, uh, we don't necessarily talk about audiences. We talk about experiencers, that the person wearing the headset is in a three-dimensional environment. They can decide where they're going to look. And as they turn their heads, you'll hear the sounds change, what we call 360-degree spatial audio. Uh, if I turn around, there, I might hear a sound behind me. And as I turn, that the sound starts to uh, seem to come in front of me. So what is the role of the VR creator? Are they just building environments in which someone is going to experience a series of events? How do those events become a story? How do you tell a story in VR? That's some of the exciting challenges that creators are facing today. No one quite has those answers yet, but that's also what makes it so exciting. 
So what are some of the obstacles to achieving that full visual immersion in VR? You spoke about latency and pixels and stuff. There are different factors that would make someone believe that they're looking at a real environment. One is having a photorealistic image, something that shows objects with enough detail, with enough uh, lighting, shading that mimics the natural world. Um, that is uh, easy to achieve when you're recording with the camera, but very difficult when you're creating that environment uh, frame by frame in an animated environment. However, photorealism isn't necessarily the only type of realism you can achieve. You could work on what we would call perceptual realism. That is, something that may not appear photorealistic, but feels perceptually that something is there, that as you move through the environment, you, see, you can interact with the objects. You can uh, look around an object, that it reacts to uh, your behavior. So something may be looking cartoonish, uh, but might feel real. Mm -hmm. So I'll give a nice analogy. SpongeBob seems to be like a cartoon. No mm -hmm. one will mistake SpongeBob for being real. Mm -hmm. But there is such a backstory to SpongeBob, uh, so many stories with so many characters that we sort of feel that we know SpongeBob, even though SpongeBob is a fictional character. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can create that sense of reality, even though um, your eyes are telling you, no, this is just an animated image. This is not real. So what is that called, that um, suspension of disbelief, I guess? So even if it's a cartoon, you're into it so much that, that you'll believe that this cartoon is really going and, you know, he's breathing bubbles underwater and, and smoking a cigarette underwater and stuff, even though it, there's no way that, that that's true. But because the story is strong, it gets people kind of immersed in it and, and into it. Yeah, in fact, some philosophers have flipped that concept on its head. They actually mm -hmm. say that when we watch fiction, we're actually undergoing suspension of belief. That mm -hmm. is that we're always perceiving things around us. And most of the time, it's the natural world. But when we watch a story, our brain is telling us, no, don't worry, this is just a story. And so mm -hmm. the feeling that, oh, this could be real might just be our natural state of things. And we have a pre prefrontal cortex that is telling the rest of our brain, no, silly, you're watching a, a fake story. You're mm -hmm. watching a fiction story. So how is perception in virtual reality different from cinema or television? Virtual reality exploits the perceptual systems that have developed in a natural world. So we have our senses like vision and hearing that allow us to see and hear what's going on in our everyday environment. Uh, we also have other senses. So most people, when they learn about senses in, in grade school, they learn that we have five senses, uh, sight, hearing, smell, uh, touch, and taste. Uh, in fact, we have many more senses than that. You can divide the sense of touch or our, what we call our haptic senses into distinct sensations um, created by distinct nerve uh, cells. Vibration is different than stretching of skin, than nociception or the sense of pain, uh, and thermoception or the sense of hot and cold. Those are all distinct mm -hmm. senses that tend to be grouped together into the sense of touch. We also have the vestibular sense, our sense of balance. Um, so we have semicircular canals uh, in our inner ear, 
uh, and when we tilt our head one way or the other, we can even with our eyes closed tell what direction we're facing uh, based on that sense. It also gives us a sense of linear acceleration. So if we start to move forward or backwards, if you put yourself into a chair and have someone push you forward or backwards with your eyes closed, you can still tell that, that you're moving even though you can't see that you're moving. Uh, proprioception, or the sense of where your body is in the environment, uh, is another distinct sense uh, from the other senses. And this is um, oftentimes someone who has uh, recently had an amputation uh, will have uh, a phenomenon called the phantom pain syndrome, where they feel the pain in an arm or a leg that is no longer there. And that is a disconnect between the visual sense uh, where they see that they're missing a limb and their proprioception, that part of the brain which is telling them that their limb should be there. Um, there's been uh, some work with neuroscientists who developed a uh, mirror box that allows patients to imagine seeing a limb that had been amputated, and when they see that, that pain disappears. So we have all these senses that help us make sense of our real world, and those senses work together. We have what's called multisensory perception. That is, that all those senses, before they reach our memory centers and cognition and our emotional centers, they integrate in some ways. And so sometimes when we hear something, we think we've seen it, and vice versa. Sometimes when we see something, we think we've heard it. In fact, we, there is a famous experiment called the McGurk effect, where when someone makes a ba-ba sound but says ga-ga with their mouth, it, it creates the impression or the perception that someone is saying va va. Mm -hmm. And so it's very it's a very strange uh, perception. You can watch uh, videos of this online, just look up McGurk effect. And with your eyes open, you're hearing one sound, you close your eyes, the exact same sound, you actually hear a different sound. So all this uh, allows us to perceive our environment, makes decisions about what should we get out of the way of, mm -hmm. uh, is something chasing us, where is there food, um, that sort of thing. VR exploits those perceptions. We're able to create um, images, uh, one for the left eye and another for the right, to create the illusion of depth. It's not really a 3D image, but it's stereoscopic in that we're seeing two different images, one in our left eye and the other one in our right eye. We also update the frames multiple times a second, 60 frames per second perhaps. Uh, we find that 30 frames per second is too slow of a frame rate to create the illusion of motion when you're in a 3D VR environment, but 60 frames or 120 frames a second creates this illusion of motion. What in fact what we're seeing are individual still images, uh, but because those images flash by so, uh, so quick, um, we, our brains, make the connection that if there's a still image with an object in one position and then another image immediately afterwards where the object has moved to another position, our brains interpolate that motion and say, ah, this thing must have moved from one position to the next. And we create the illusion of motion through this uh, quick succession of images. Uh, it's, it's the same effect that film and television uses, but because we're seeing that in our headset, um, we create this illusion that it's a more immersive environment. 
Uh, more importantly, when we turn our heads in a VR environment, we update our field of view and that's in front of us. So when you're watching a film or television show and you turn your head, the screen stays in the same spot and you can look around the screen. In a VR environment, when you turn your head, it looks like as if you were looking at a different spot in that environment. And that creates a more immersive uh, perception because we're engaging both, both the vestibular sense, or your sense of where your head is, your proprioception, um, and your uh, visual sense. So all those senses working together create a bigger illusion, a perceptual real, uh, realism, that we are looking at something uh, like our natural environment. So it sounds like the VR creator has a lot of responsibility and a lot of power, just the way filmmakers do, but almost even more to an, another degree. Are there any rules you can share or ethical considerations that we want to think about as VR designers? That's a really good question. I think that we're still in the experimental stage of VR, so there hasn't been a lot of thought or discussion about what is the right thing to do in VR? Is there an unethical use of VR? But certain theorists are starting to ask those questions. I think the general policy is transparency. If you're going to change an environment, you have to let your uh, people experiencing the environment uh, know that you're changing the environment. Uh, you can't uh, misrepresent something as being captured in a natural environment. Oh, this is a real place or this is a real event that happened, and then manipulate uh, what people are seeing and hearing in the VR environment. I think it's going to become even more important than fake news or audio or video deepfakes that we're seeing uh, across the Internet today because VR is so much more perceptually real to viewers. It's going to be a lot harder to convince people that something is not real when it feels real when they're looking at it in VR. Uh, I think that there is a converse case as well that um, as more people manipulate uh, images in the VR environment, uh, we'll start to develop a general mistrust of the VR environment mm -hmm. so that when people put on VR goggles, they may think nothing that they see in here is real. And so that the VR documentary maker who might capture a real event or, or a real crisis or a real um, uh, tragedy and shares it with people to try to build awareness, get the word out, other people might come out and say, oh, that was faked. That's not real. So not knowing where VR is going, I guess we should look backwards and, and think about how did the emergence of virtual reality compare to the way film and television evolved? I think taking a historical approach to media is, gives us a good path for us seeing how VR may develop. So when we look at the early days of film, there the first stage was what we call an attraction stage. Uh, short films were presented as part of vaudeville presentations or variety shows. You might have a singing act, a, um, some magic acts, and then someone will wheel out this newfangled invention called a um, moving picture uh, projector. And then people would be wowed by, wow, we can actually see these moving images. That's, you know, we've only seen still pictures and paintings before, and now we're seeing something that, that actually moves. That's pretty cool. Um, early 
on, we started seeing travel logs. People would uh, create uh, movies of far off places. Mm -hmm. So you may not be able to travel to the Himalayas yourself, but a filmmaker did and brought with them a camera and captured the images from that space. And now you in the comfort of a theater can see what the Himalayas look like. So I think that's what's happening with VR. We're still in this attraction stage. Hey, look at the top of the World Trade Center. Let me show you the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Let's go down deep into the uh, deepest caverns of the ocean. I can show you all this in a VR environment and you can experience it. So uh, the simple fact that a lot of these VR headsets are showing up at amusement parks, Mm -hmm. I think gets to the idea that this is an attraction right now. The question will be, what happens next? How do you tell stories in VR? And for that, I would look to the video game industry as a model. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see two different things happening in video games. First of all, uh, it's growing uh, faster than film. As film revenue is uh, remaining relatively stagnant, uh, video gaming surpassed film about a decade ago in terms of annual revenues, and it just keeps on growing. You have an interactive environment, and you also have a social environment. Many games are multiplayer now, and Mm -hmm. people are able to chat with one another. There's even uh, what are called LAN parties, where people will bring their video game consoles over to someone's house, hook up onto the same network, and then Mm -hmm. talk to each other uh, face-to-face while they're playing games, or I guess Mm -hmm. ear-to-ear, because they're looking at their screens while while they're talking to one another. Um, So there's an interactive component to video games that isn't necessarily there with movies. And um, there is a, even though you may not have completely photorealistic images in video games, you feel a perceptual realism. I know that when I get shot in a video game, (laughs) I wince. I feel like something has happened. I'm not bleeding or anything. It's obviously much safer, but, Mm -hmm. but I have that visceral reaction. That speaks to the perceptual realism of, of gaming uh, that VR can tap into. So I would look to video games as, as a way uh, to understand what might happen with uh, VR. Having said that, I've also seen in video games what are called cutscenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are incredibly cinematic presentations of the story of the game itself. And so while you have these interactive moments where you're playing the game, you also have these more passive moments where you're sitting watching the story unfold above you. So if you play a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, some of those shots in the cutscenes uh, rival Oscar-winning uh, cinematography mm-hmm. in major motion pictures. And they can do it because they're not really filming it. <laughs> <laughs> they can generate it in a yes. 3D environment and render it out. Mm-hmm. So you might see that mix in uh, future VR presentations. There might be moments where you're having a more interactive experience where things may not be as photorealistic, but have a perceptual realism to it. And there may be other parts in your VR experience where you're asked to stay still, or if you move, you don't see your field of view update, uh, but you're presented with something that is photorealistic. So where is VR going, or even, I would say, where is it going to take us? I think VR... Uh, has several possibilities for development. I think that combining with faster wireless internet, uh, especially faster mobile signals, the new uh, 5G signal that will be released is exponentially faster than our our current uh, 4G environments. 
um, will be able to connect these headsets wirelessly and and transmit images um, that will rival uh, the view of the natural world. Um, I see these headsets linking together, possibly having webs of headsets. Mm-hmm. You being able to connect to networks as you walk through an environment. Mm-hmm. I think that there's going to be a danger of uh, VR uh, trips and falls, that if you're completely replacing your view with a uh, um, made-up environment, um, your body doesn't know what's right in front of you. You're not perceiving it because you've you've cut off that part of your vision. So I think um, already um, developers are creating uh, safety features in these videos. Mm-hmm. You'll see a grid pop up if you reach the end of your natural space. Cameras on the outside of the headsets are monitoring the space around you. So there will be safety features built in to prevent that from happening. Uh, but for now, it's best to keep a clear room uh, mm-hmm. with definite barriers and yeah. set your VR up so that it knows where those barriers are so you don't run into them while you're <laughs> playing your game. Maybe some padded walls. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe some knee pads as well. Oh, yeah. How does the responsibility of the VR designer increase? I mean, you spoke about the ethical considerations that we want to think about, but how do we not hurt people and make bad VR? I remember an experience about 15 years ago when people started wearing uh, Bluetooth headsets connected to mm-hmm. their mobile phones. So I'm that was walking, a look. <laughs> <laughs> I was walking down the street and I saw someone talking and I thought they were talking to me. And so I responded and they looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. And that's when I realized, oh, they're not talking to me. They're talking to someone else on their phone. I can envision a future not too far off where people are wearing VR glasses and they're walking down the street. (laughs) And you might think that they're interacting with you when, in fact, they are in a completely different world. Mm -hmm. They are in a different environment. Uh, They might be working in a VR environment. They might be playing in that environment, but they're not in that present, in that physical space. Um, I think that's both uh, a challenge um, and something that uh, people are going to have to adjust to. I think that's going to become uh, the more normal state of things. So let's talk about that seamless integration of technology with VR. So how does it reshape our symbolic and physical worlds? Virtual reality gives us both the possibilities to imagine any uh, possible world as well as detach us from our physical world. And so I don't want to be a naysayer and say, oh, you know, virtual reality is going to uh, make us lose connection with each other or with our real world. People said that about novels. Oh, they have their heads buried in a novel. Mm -hmm. They're not paying attention to the real world. So I don't want to go that far, but there is a concern that as we imagine what is possible in VR worlds, uh, we make it more attractive, not unlike the Matrix, right? Mm -hmm. We we can tailor a world that um, matches exactly what the world that we want to live in. Now, that's also a good thing. We can create worlds that imagine possibilities that we can bring back into the real world. This is something I'm writing about now is uh, occasions where we imagine something and then we build it in the real world and Mm -hmm. make the world a better place. I think, though, that um, the way 
media technologies have developed in the past, especially with large centralized companies, monopolistic practices, that we run the danger of VR being controlled by entities that will tailor entire environments to make us want to buy their products Mm -hmm. and services. Uh, So just like Facebook will feed you ads based on your experiences, and I'm sure other people have had the experience where they're thinking about something and all of a sudden an ad (laughs) pops up in front of them that is exactly what they were thinking of. And they wonder, oh, wait a minute, am I being bugged? Is someone watching me? Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, artificial intelligence has just modeled our behavior so well that it can predict what we want or uh, worse off, shape what we want. So mm-hmm. we think we want something when, in fact, we've been guided that way by these technologies. Uh, the perceptual realism of virtual reality will make that an even more insidious effect. So that's something that we need to watch out for and maybe create some ethical guidelines for is how far do we allow advertisers or other uh, outside entities uh, shape our behavior, our desires, our wants and needs uh, through these artificial environments. So what are some of the possibilities for a VR creator? Um, You spoke about advertising people putting kind of product placement in VR. I I can only imagine how crazy that's going to be. But what are the different applications of VR that that maybe haven't been as popular as gaming? There's a lot of documentary filmmakers who have turned to VR to show perceptual experiences. Uh, None de la Peña, uh, created a project back in 2012 called Hunger in L.A. And her goal was to show what was happening uh, among people who were waiting in a food pantry line uh, at the Unitarian Church in Los Angeles. It, um, there was someone who had an epileptic seizure, and other people started raiding the pantry, and it became uh, a, a really untenable scene. And De La Pena created a VR animation to go along with the real audio that was recorded at that event to put people there, to have them imagine what it's like to be in that environment. So that's one possibility for VR is to uh, condition people to experience environments that may not be safe for them to be in the real world uh, or to transport them to places that they may not have an opportunity to go to to see what is it really like. That might create opportunities for uh, cross-cultural conversations um, and understanding and empathy. Um, However, there's a flip side to that, and that is that you can model environments that are unlike what people are really experiencing in other parts of the world and create complete misperceptions of what other people are experiencing. And that's the challenge with VR is that because you can create anything in that environment, what will you create? So the example you shared, is that a passive kind of experience or are you able to interact in that documentary? Hunger in LA is an interactive experience. So Mm -hmm. you're able to walk through that environment. You're able Mm -hmm. to step around the person having the seizure, um, turn around and see the people raiding the pantry. Of course, they're very... they're, they're very uh, crude animations. They're not photorealistic at all. Mm-hmm. But when you pair it with the actual audio of the event, mm-hmm. you have this visceral feeling of this is probably what it was like. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you're hearing the audio of what exactly it was like. 
Um, and so being able to walk through that environment gives you a sense of immersion that you wouldn't have if you were just listening to the audio. So then in that example, it sounds like that, that VR is still, it does still have that principle of film of audio being almost more important than the visual. Absolutely. Uh, we were talking before about multi-sensory perception. And if you have audio that reinforces what you're seeing, uh, it's going to lead to a greater sense of uh, immersion, of realism. Um, that's, that's the interesting thing about VR is that we can explore it as an immersive medium, just like movies have tried to become more immersive, big sci-fi blockbusters try mm-hmm. to get you feel like you're seeing something when you watch Jurassic Park. For the first time, you feel like you're really seeing dinosaurs mm-hmm. there, right? It's that that sense of uh, immersion and realism that those big blockbusters uh, tr- try to um, entice you to, to experience. But um, film also has an aesthetic. It has what we call poetics. And so what are the differences between experiencing film as a medium as opposed to experiencing uh, your real-life environment? When you hear music in a movie... Uh, well, we don't nor- normally walk around and mm-hmm. you know have a feeling about somebody, and then all of a sudden music Soundtrack. swells up behind <laughs> us, right? We don't have a narrator telling us something. Um, when you see a flashback in a movie or you're seeing one thing but hearing something else, that triggers your brain to say, wait a minute, that's not like the real world. What's going on here? It creates a little puzzle. And when you figure out that puzzle, when you start to create new meanings mm-hmm. uh, out of those uh, different sensory experiences, you get a little reward. You're like, oh, that's really cool. That's that's a beautiful piece of art. Um, abstract Experimental films do the same thing. When you're not actually seeing things that correspond to the real world, just abstract shapes or movements, you start to wonder, well, what is this? What's, you know, what is this possibly? Now, it could be so far gone that if you have no connection, no ability to figure out that puzzle, you just give up on it. Oh, that's mm-hmm. just an experimental film. I'm not interested. You reject it and you move on. You get no pleasure out of that. But for some people who wrestle with it, think about it, feel it, experience it, they might start making associations that give them real joy in experiencing that. So that's what VR can explore. On the one hand, we have this perceptual and photorealistic uh, uh, realism that you can generate in VR, much more so than with film or video. Uh, but on the other hand, it does have an aesthetic. It has a poetics that the medium is different than real life. And once we start to understand what those differences are, we can use that to create a VR aesthetic. And that's where the real opportunities are. When VR creators start experimenting with what is VR as a medium do that's different than real life and start exploiting that, start telling stories using those techniques then we'll have a true VR aesthetic. So you've done a lot of research and presentations about virtual reality. What is that enticing thing that that made you so interested in VR? I am so excited about where VR is in its development. As a film historian, I've read about what people experienced when they saw their first movies. I remember as a kid seeing my first movies and and being excited when I was seven years old 
watching Star Wars on the big screen. Mm-hmm. That that said, oh, I, I've got to figure out how they did this. This, <laughs> yeah. this, this is amazing. Um, and so VR is in a, in a similar spot today as the early film was in, the, in that attraction stage. Uh, there's so much to figure out with VR. Mm-hmm. And so that, that excites me, that to be at the cusp of, of a medium when it's brand new, mm-hmm. uh, when you can help influence how it develops, figuring out what the aesthetic is and then making stories in using that aesthetic, that's, that's uh, something that only comes across once in a lifetime. I think we'll end there. And thank you, Michael, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. And thanks for listening, everyone. I'm filmmaker, artist, author, and your host, Laura Mioli. You can connect with me, getting creative tips and inspiration on social media. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Loudavision. And you can listen to more of these podcasts, read my book, watch my videos, and contact me. Just go to loudavision.com. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. So subscribe and you won't miss any new episodes. Thanks for listening.